Yeah, so there are three unpublished manuscripts that I know about, and I have two of them. That's Dr. Kiran Musunuru of the University of Pennsylvania. He's a physician scientist who works in genetics and gene editing. He has also co-founded a company called Verve Therapeutics. He's written a book about some children you may have heard about. The book is called The CRISPR Generation, The Story of the World's First Gene-Edited Babies. It's a book well worth reading. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. This is another episode in a series about the CRISPR children, the first people born with genomes edited before their birth. They were born in 2018. I wrote an article for Nature Biotechnology about them, a piece I've been working on for three years. I've wanted to find out about how these children are, how to assess any health effects they might experience from the gene editing. A lot of scientists refused to speak with me, but a number of them did, and I am grateful to them. These podcasts are for sharing more of what I found out as I dug around on this matter. What Dr. Musunuru is talking about is that he has seen two manuscripts by a scientist by the name of He Zhangkui, who, with his lab team at Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, gene-edited human embryos. These embryos were implanted into the bodies of women from whom eggs had been obtained. The eggs were fertilized with their husband's sperm in a lab dish. This is in vitro fertilization. That's something that's done around the world to help people who want to have a biological child and for whatever reason, they cannot do so. Right after fertilization of the egg, then, in this instance, the scientists injected CRISPR-Cas9 reagents into the fertilized egg. They wanted to make targeted gene edits. The goal was for this to lead to people who would be resistant, perhaps even immune to HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. The gene edit was supposed to disable a protein that acts as a kind of molecular doorknob for HIV. There are a total of three children who resulted from these experiments, which caused an uproar that you may have heard about when it became public what He Zhengkui and his lab team had done. Kiran Musunuru wrote his book, and he focuses on two children, Lulu and Nana. They are non-identical twins. He talks about his thoughts on this experiment and on gene editing more general, and he talks about the manuscripts he has seen. He has this passage about scientific manuscripts that I'm just going to read here. If you're ever having trouble falling asleep, try reading a scientific paper. They tend to be written in a convoluted style chock full of technical jargon and couched in mealy-mouthed language that never quite commits to any conclusion. And then a bit later in that section, he writes, on the flip side, if you're a researcher and you come across a paper describing work in an area where you're an expert, maybe work that directly impacts your own work, that paper will be an engrossing page turner that you won't be able to put down. So that was a passage from Kiran Musanuru's book. And this is how he felt when he read the manuscript describing the efforts by J.K.'s team to make the world's first gene-edited babies. J.K. is the shorthand sometimes used to refer to He Zhangkui, who is serving a jail sentence related to these experiments. The manuscript that made Dr. Musunuru sit up was called Birth of Twins After Genome Editing for HIV Resistance. To put it mildly, Kiran Musunuru is not a fan of this manuscript. 
I call it manuscript because this is a scientific study that has found its way into news stories and into this book by Dr. Musunuru, but it's work that has not been published in any journal, has not been uploaded to any preprint server or website. The data are not available for scientists to study. A journalist at a magazine called MIT Technology Review had heard about the study and published his news piece on it. The Associated Press had been working on a story for a long time on this, and then when the MIT Technology Review story came out, AP published its story. That was all in late November 2018. And then a lot happened, some of which is not terribly clear, still not three years later. That always irked me. It's why I kept asking people about this. Many scientists didn't want to speak with me, but some scientists did, including Dr. Musunuru. So back to the manuscript, Birth of Twins After Genome Editing for HIV Resistance. I think the one that I, that I recount in my book, that's the one that you know kind of made me very, very upset yeah. <laughs> as I related in my book. There is a companion manuscript that I do not have, I have not seen, but apparently is a preclinical work in embryos, human embryos, monkey embryos, mouse embryos, that kind of led up to the quote-unquote clinical trial. It's a quote-unquote clinical trial because it seems to not have been run as a clinical trial with all the permissions that that entails. What is clear for Kiran Musunuru is that what was done is an ethics violation. There are a lot of ethical problems with what he did. And, you know, my sense is over time is that this is going to be you know, a textbook example. I think, you know, when future generations of students talk about, you know, times when ethical principles were heavily violated, of course, there's going to be the number of trials. Of course, there's going to be study, but I think this will actually be part of the discussion as well. The chapter in my book that really focuses on the ethical issues, in a sense, but what, you know, what drove me to write it that way was the thinking that, I don't know, maybe someday, that chapter can be cleanly taken out as it actually served as a relatively short summary that students can read about the various principles um, of ethical medical research and then how in this, you know, almost case study, they were all violated. Ethics violations are serious in science and especially so in medicine. There have been awful experiments in the past. For example, as Kiran Muzunuru mentions, the Tuskegee trial. It was run by the U.S. Public Health Service. It started in 1932, ended in 1972 because of a whistleblower. And for 40 years, African-American men with syphilis were studied. Oh, sorry, this experiment is awful. Treatment for syphilis is penicillin but this treatment was withheld from these men. The Nazi experiments on people were also awful ethics violations in medicine. In the so-called doctor's trial, 23 physicians and scientists went on trial and were convicted because they engaged in the murder and torture of numerous individuals, such as by testing chemical weapons on them or inflicting wounds that were intentionally infected and not treated. Also awful experimentation on people which Kiran Musunuru also talks about in his book. So for him and for many, these gene editing experiments are different, but they are as unethical as those experiments. I wondered if and how these unethical experiments, the data from them, have been published. Indeed, the Tuskegee experiment information is accessible due to a whistleblower and a scientist by the name of Taiwana Worley, who investigated this. She is at Simmons College. 
And these Nazi experiments, the data from them, are accessible too. So it has been striking to me and odd that the information about these experiments with the gene-edited children are not accessible. And yes, these things are always complicated, and the privacy and dignity of the children has to be respected and maintained. For this gene-editing experiment to become a lesson, it seems it would benefit from relaying detail about what was done and also investigating how the victims are being cared for. The children are here and alive, and maybe they and their parents could benefit from input from the scientific community to investigate if they have been harmed by the gene-editing experiments the children would have to be examined quite deeply. But the question is how? What kinds of tests might be appropriate? There have never been people who were gene edited before birth. And of course, there is their privacy and dignity to keep in mind, of course, too. Their parents would have to consent to any monitoring of the children's health. I asked Kiran Musunur about all this. They're human beings and they have a certain dignity that inheres in, in being a human being. And, you know, part of that is not being treated like an experimental subject unless there is consent. Now, here it's all tricky because while they're growing up, it's really their parents that are responsible for them, right? Right. Um, and so it's going to be on them to decide. Hopefully, they'll have some freedom to decide to what degree do they want their children monitored, how invasive could that monitoring be? You know, from a purely scientific perspective, I'm being very careful in what I say here, purely scientific, if you want to know what happened to these kids, you know, there's the issues of mosaicism and so forth. You would have to do fairly exhaustive, extensive, and perhaps even invasive sampling throughout the body to get a sense of, you know, what is the extent of these CCR5 edits throughout their body. Now, I'm not advocating for that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, that's a lot to put on a kid purely to answer a scientific question. Um, the flip side is you treat them like you would any other children. They get regular pediatric you know, visits and, you know, on an annual basis or whatnot, um, just to make sure everything's okay. From a source I can't name, I know that the He Jean-Cui lab set up a health plan for the children that resulted from his experiments. They were to get health exams until they are 18 years old. And then the hope was that they consent to further health checkups. But it's unclear if the health plan is being adhered to. The plan stipulates that the lab will pay for any health exams, and some exams have supposedly taken place. One big challenge the children face is that they are likely genetically mosaic. Our cells tend to be all genetically identical, but because of the way the gene editing was performed, these children, and just a reminder, there are three children that we know of, in order to understand the effect mosaicism might have in their bodies, one would need to sample their organs. Not possible. And not only would you need to sample them, you would still not know about that organ because you might have sampled a part that is made up of edited cells. But right next to where the biopsy needle went in, there are cells that have a different genetic code. In the cells, there might be a change in the CCR5 gene, which was the one that He Jean-Cui and his team tried to edit. But the change also could be elsewhere in the genome an off-target effect, or just a mutation that took place and is not connected to gene editing. Children are not clones of their parents. They have many new gene variants in their genome. It's hard, perhaps impossible, to know which cells in the body of these gene-edited children are mosaic and which might cause disease or raise the risk of disease. Let's say, you know, God forbid, one of them gets cancer in their teenage years. 
how will you know whether that actually is because of really bad luck, because some kids do get cancer, um, or because it was a direct result of the edit? It's not clear to me that you would know. Mm. How would, you know, you'd be able to figure that out. According to a source, the three children, there's Lulu, Nana, and Amy, the children are okay. Hard to know for certain if this is true, but this is what I have been told. But should they develop a disease such as cancer, it will be hard to know if the gene editing caused that or contributed to that. So perhaps they need more intense screening than others, or not. Kiran Musanuru and others I contacted said it is unclear to them how to determine what might have gone awry in their cells to the point that it causes disease. The girls' genomes have been edited to induce HIV resistance, and we surely do not want to test if they are resistant or are not when exposed to the virus. There's another aspect. The CCR5 gene might fulfill other jobs in the body involving the immune system, and the girls may, for example, be more vulnerable to viruses. But that is unknown. Let's say human embryos have been edited for a heart condition then implanted, and the pregnancy was taken to term. Kiran Musunuru has worked a lot on the heart, so I asked him what would one, in theory, do to test, and let's say there was concern about mosaicism. Yeah, yeah I mean, you'd have to sample the heart if you wanted to know if there were any mosaic mutations in there, you know, biopsy, which, which is done for like heart transplant patients and patients with heart failure. Oh. Um, it is an invasive procedure. There are some risks, but it's not something you would do lightly. Um, and, you know, even, you know, taking a little box from one part apart might not give you a whole answer. With mosaicism, it's hard to get whole answers. Mosaicism is a problem with embryo editing. There are bound to be cells that have edited genomes and cells with unedited genomes. And there might be different on-target and off-target mutations, unintended side effects, so to speak, due to the gene editing. It's likely to occur, and it's difficult, perhaps even impossible to assess. I have another podcast just on that aspect based on a conversation with Rudy Yenish from the Whitehead Institute in Boston. About the girl's health, just a note, the team used the mother's blood to assay the fetuses in the womb, and they used cell-free DNA and then ran cancer panels to look for specific mutations that might lead to cancer or heighten cancer risk. Here's Kiran Musunuru talking some more about those tests and mosaicism issues. That's, that's the devilish thing about, you know, mosaicism, as I probably emphasize too much in the book. And, you know, I harp on it over and over again, is that, you know, all those cancer panels and everything you mentioned, that was from mom's blood, right? Um, you know, that was cell-free DNA that emanated from the fetus, or in this case, two fetuses, that ended up in mom's blood, and it was measured indirectly. Um, that's only that only reflects sampling of cells that were shed by the placenta. That actually is not cells from the kids themselves. Mm-hmm. Amniocentesis, amniocentesis would give you more information, but apparently mom uh, refused amniocentesis when it was offered to her. Right. Um, so, so you don't have that more direct information. But even then, it's just cells shed from basically the, the skin or the precursor of the skin of the fetus into the amniotic fluid. If there's if there are mutations hidden away deep in the body. You'll never know it through any of this analysis, right? And it, you know it could be hidden there, and it might, and it might, um, you know, it might cause unforeseen problems in the future if it ends up in germ cells. Right. The person who was born might be fine. Right. And right. If you go to the next generation, it could, you know, end up being propagated there, and then there wouldn't be mosaic anymore. Then it would end up in all the cells 
um, you know, that, that second generation and potentially cause problems. How do you assess for this? I don't know. Like, you know, science is so new. Just mosaicism in general and somatic mutations and clonal chromatopoiesis and indeterminate potential, a lot of things that are really hot in biomedical science right now, right? Well, we've never had a situation where somebody has, or I wouldn't say intentionally, but, you know, actively created mosaicism. It was likely not intentional that He Zhangqui and his team created mosaic embryos, but it is what likely happened. Yeah, I mean, so here's the problem. If you do anything in embryos, you know, what he did is he injected in single-cell embryos. And that's what scientists typically do with animals, like if they're trying to make transgenic animals or CRISPR-modified animals, single-cell states. And the problem is that CRISPR remains active beyond that first cell. Um, even if you try to contrive to make it so that it's more limited in its duration, What's been seen over and over again is it remains active, cell divides, and then you get eggs in some, not in others, and then you end up with mosaic situation. And the problem is there is absolutely no way you can be 100% sure mm. that out of some cells that you sampled, wherever it is from the fetus or, you know, from the blastocyst before you implanted, there is no way you can possibly know what is going on for sure in the rest of the cells that you didn't sample. We do not have the ability to read DNA sequence without destroying cells. It's beyond our capability. So I would argue, um, not that I'm necessarily supporting germline gene editing, but as I mentioned in my book, what I would argue is the only safe way from the perspective of mosaicism is to do it before there's an embryo, to do it in sperm cells, to do it in egg cells, spermatogonial stem cells, because then you can let the editing happen, let enough time pass that CRISPR is gone, um, and then you make the embryo, and then you know you have a single cell um, it's a single genome that is stable. There's absolutely no CRISPR around. You let that grow into a blastocyst. Then you can be pretty sure that if you sample a few cells from the blastocyst, that it does reflect what's going on in the rest of the embryo. Mm-hmm. That's the bar you have to meet. You know, so there's a technological issue. I don't know that it can ever be truly safe if you're actually editing embryos. Um, that doesn't mean you can't do germline editing. It just means you need to do it at an earlier stage or you need to develop fantastic new technology that doesn't exist that can somehow scan the entire genome of an embryo. I don't even know how you would do that, but somehow right. not basically do it without harming the embryo anyway. If one wanted to perform heritable gene editing and that it was approved and ethically okay and avoid mosaicism, one would need a way to non-invasively scan the embryo's genome. That technology does not exist. The alternative is you edit the genomes in germ cells, such as sperm or egg, as Kiran Musunuru mentioned. A number of scientists have pointed this out, such as Rudy Yenish and George Church at Harvard Medical School. Another event that can happen in gene editing is off-target and on-target edits, both of which are unintended. There are ways to screen for those, but as Kiran Musunuru explains, the team of He Zhangqui did not do that analysis well. Data about the third child, whom I call Amy, are unknown. In his presentation at the Second International Summit on Human Gene Editing in 2018, Hajankui said they found one off-target mutation. And he said they found this one off-target in an intergenic region of chromosome 1 of Lulu's genome. One off-target. There's no way they picked up. They just happened to pick up the one off-target. One, the issue of mosaicism, right? So they picked up 
an off-target effect. That was itself mosaic, right? So they just got lucky in one of the five cells or whatever they sampled from the embryo happened to have that off-target edit. Um, and, you know, they, they picked it up, basically a trace of it. Um, and so to think that out of the 300 cells in the embryo, they just got lucky and happened to pick up the one cell that had an off-target edit, no way. That beggars your imagination, right? And I mean, you'd have to be incredibly lucky for that to happen. And then the sensitivity of next-generation sequencing, you know, what they did, the whole genome sequencing, it was quite poor. It was very patchy. Um, it was nowhere near deep enough to reliably pick up anything that happens in the genome. Um, there are a lot of areas of the genome that aren't even that well-defined where you can be sure that what you're seeing is an off-target effect versus genetic variation versus whatnot. Um, and again, that issue of mosaicism, right, you know, if, if something's only present in one out of the five cells, um, you may not pick it up because only, you know, 20% of the reads are executed. It might even be less. It might be 10% of the reads you know, because you have 10 alleles across the five diploid genome. So only 10% of the alleles might actually, you know, have the variant allele. Um, and that could be interpreted as noise when you're doing the next generation sequencing. Um, and then you have no idea what's going on in the rest of the embryo. So I feel pretty certain that no, they did not pick up the, you know, like, the, the off-target effects, all of them. And there's another reason I'm sure of that is because in Lulu's placenta, there's clearly an off-target mutation that is not the same as the off-target mutation that was seen in the PGD. It's a different off-target mutation. I wouldn't even call it off-target. It's actually an on-target mutation, but, you know, like, uh, unintended or, uh, you know, an additional off-target mutation, um, but that was not picked up in the original PGD, which means it was probably hanging out somewhere else in the embryo and then ended up in the placenta. So in addition to mosaicism, there were additional mutations that were unintended by the gene editing. The data about these experiments are not published. Kiran Musunuru has seen the manuscripts, but not many scientists have. And like Dr. Musunuru, there are many questions unresolved about the gene editing that took place. To assess the embryos and now the children adequately, well, that's a scientific and medical challenge all in of itself. We just don't have the technology yet. It's, we're just not, we're getting better, but we, we can't sequence widely enough and deeply enough to be really confident, especially with mosaicism, that you can entirely rule out off target effects. I think they got lucky, they found one. Um, I think, you know, it's like tip of the iceberg, there are probably many more, you know swimming underneath that they just, you know, were not able to pick up because of the limitations of today's technology. And, you know, let's, let's face it, Ho Zhang Kui was not exactly, you know, the world-leading expert on on sequencing technologies, even though he sort of presented himself as such. The experiments by the He Zhang Kui lab have had consequences, living consequences. There are three girls with genomes that were gene-edited before their birth. One question that is open is, are there perhaps more children? I have some upsetting indication there are. That others are experimenting with human embryos and implanting them and taking the pregnancy to term. One aspect I want to mention is that He Zhang Kui and physician scientist by the name of John Zhang, who is a friend and also a kind of mentor to He Zhang Kui, so I've heard, Zhang is CEO and founder of New Hope Fertility, which offers in vitro fertilization services. Together, the two of them had been planning to open an in vitro fertilization clinic to offer gene editing services to people who desire a biological child. 
Such services are illegal in many countries and unregulated in others. And in some countries, there are facilities where other types of regulations apply, such as military hospitals. If an entrepreneur wants to find and use CRISPR reagents, he or she can. Here's Kiran Musunuru talking generally about gene editing. Very easy to do um, if you don't mind doing it badly, <laughs> if you don't care about the consequences, right? If you want to do it well, if you want to do it safely and rigorously, it's very challenging with today's CRISPR technology because it does have the limitations. It does have its issues. It's a far from perfected technology. We have a long way to go before it has truly pinpoint precision um, before you can be sure that it does complete editing 100% where you want it to and 0% everywhere else. We're just, you know, nowhere near that yet. In a few years, maybe, but we're not certainly not there now. Clearly, there is a lot more to find out about the experiments, and a lot of developments will be necessary if one ever wants to consider heritable gene editing. Gene editing in adults has been progressing. It's not the same in so many ways, but Kiran Musunuru told me about this gene editing in adults too. He works on gene editing in adults related to heart attack. This is somatic cell gene editing, not heritable gene editing, not gene editing in embryos. One type of somatic gene editing is CAR-T therapy. It's for cancer patients. Some T cells are removed from their blood, and in the lab, these T cells are engineered to fight the cancer and then infused back into papal. This immunotherapy has led to striking positive results, and cancer immunotherapy is now a bustling field. With adult gene editing, Kiran Musunuru has a different disorder in mind. Among the genes he studies is PCSK9, which produces a protein. Mainly, it produces the protein in the liver, and this protein appears to play a role in a heritable form of high cholesterol. One idea he and others have is that if you decrease the activity of this protein, you can decrease LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol. One can use gene editing to block this protein in the bodies of adults. He has co-founded a company called Verve Therapeutics that is exploring gene editing in adults, and there are a number of companies in this space. So I mean, we have to be very clear about the distinction between germline gene editing, right? So things that could be you know, inherited through through generations that happen in embryos or potentially in sperm or eggs or, or whatnot, right? Um, and somatic gene editing that is, you know, unambiguously in living people, adults, maybe in some situations children, but typically adults who have active illness or who are at high risk for illness, because I think they're entirely different situations. So the work that I'm doing is entirely about really adult gene editing. It's about patients with heart disease or who are at high risk for heart disease because of genetic conditions like familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, and there is a very well-established path to developing therapies. We've seen it with basically every drug that's been considered by the Drug Administration. We've seen it with the first gene therapy applications that have now been approved um, with CAR-T immunotherapy, and we're starting to see it with, with uh, somatic gene editing. And so there's a well-established path, requires lots and lots of preclinical work, um, years of work in preclinical models, whether it's mice or not, human primates, et cetera, et cetera. Generation of so much data it takes up thousands of pages that you submit to the FDA or in Europe, the, the EMA, the equivalent 
in Europe um, before you get approval to proceed with a clinical trial. And then even when you're doing the clinical trial, there is so much oversight. Um, you know, everything is is reviewed, all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. You know, it's a very, very different scenario than what Jean Kui did. I mean, he basically, you know, quote unquote, clinical trial, if you want to call it that. It was done with no oversight, no supervision. It was just him thinking that he could run a clinical trial despite having no medical training or no experience in clinical trials. Um, there was, you know, some question of an ethics committee maybe giving approval. That seems to be under debate whether that actually really happened or not. Um, and, you know, he just did what he thought he knew he what he was doing. In retrospect, he didn't really know what he was doing. Whereas, you know, any effort I make, any effort that, you know, my fellow scientists um, at either companies um, that are doing gene editing, developing applications or institutions like my home institution, the University of Pennsylvania, where there are some clinical trials underway. Everything is being done in a very, very responsible uh, way that it takes years to unfold, right? And so and it takes a lot of money, a lot of resources to generate all the data, preclinical models to establish safety, to satisfy regulators before you're even allowed to touch a human being. And then you have to go through all the various phases of clinical trials, and satisfy the FDA once again before they'll allow you to actually market a drug to patients. At Verve Therapeutics, Kiran Musanuru is senior scientific advisor and he has remained at the University of Pennsylvania. The company was spun out of the university into a UPenn incubator space and is now headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The company plan is to develop gene editing delivered to patients who are at risk for cardiovascular disease. There are gene variants that people have in their genomes that lowers their risk of heart attacks. The goal the company has is to mimic this and use gene editing to lower lipids in the blood of people who have a high risk of heart attack. The genes their technique addresses are expressed in the liver, and so these are the genes that would be changed. So that's PCSK9 and perhaps also other. The approach will make changes in the cells of an adult liver, but it's not a change that is passed on to the person's children. This process does not edit embryos or sperm or eggs. One day there might be clinical trials in people, and for that what is needed is called an investigational new drug application with regulatory authorities in the U.S. and in Europe. Since I spoke with Kiran Musunuru, he and his colleagues published a study about monkeys in which they used a different kind of gene editing called CRISPR adenine base editing to target the PCSK9 gene. They created a mutation in that gene that lowered the level of protein that gene produced, and it also lowered LDL cholesterol in the body of the monkeys for eight months. The result, the authors of the study point out, it was published in Nature. The results provide a proof of concept for the delivery of base editors to the primate liver. It's somatic base editing, not germline gene editing. Potentially a therapy, still being tested, of course. It's gene editing, and it is not at all like the work He Jean-Cui did. Yeah. Yeah. We're very unambiguous, and anyone we talk to, and it's right there on the website, we have absolutely no intention whatsoever of going anywhere near the germline. Um, you know, we are very specifically and unambiguously about treating adult patients with heart disease or at risk for heart disease. 
His work at UPenn and at Verve is not at all about germline gene editing, but he is, of course, concerned about what He Zhangqui did and about the need to learn from this. That would mean making the data somehow available to the biomedical community. But there are lots of issues with that. Some are specific to China, such as whether or not the data could even be permitted to go to labs outside of China to be analyzed. And there is the need to maintain the privacy of these children and their dignity, of course. You know, it's this, this tension between privacy, respect for privacy, which I fully appreciate. I'm a physician, believe me, I appreciate that as well as anybody else. Um, and the need for people, scientists, but really, I think, the general public to understand what happened here um, to the extent that it doesn't, you know, cause very, you know, cause unintentional harm to the people actually involved, which in this case is the twins or the parents. I think there's also a feeling that, if you, you know, you don't want to put too much data out there, right? You mentioned the MySeq data, like that, that gets tricky because that's not, that's definitely not published, right? The chromatograms, you know, some of the stuff I talk about in the book, all of that was actually publicly presented by Hui Zhang Kui himself, um, you know, with a live, with a live stream audience of more than a million people, and you can still actually watch it. Some data about the girls, about what He Zhang Kui did, can be found sometimes in unexpected places. One can watch the presentation, and some people, like Kiran Musanuru, have the manuscript. The manuscripts are not to be found in a scientific journal. They're not on a preprint server. Here's Kiran Musunuru. Yeah, so there's nothing I'd really talk about in my book. It was with respect to data, with respect to, you know, like actual, you know, radograms or information or whatnot. That isn't already out there. So I felt comfortable with that. And once you talk about MySeq data, once you talk about, you know, genetic variation, and, you know, some of that's in the manuscript, some of it is on the Chinese clinical trial registry site, believe it or not. Um, you know, you're inching towards, you know, how much is too much information to be sharing about live human beings, right? Even though the data is not directly from the human beings, right. you know, it's from embryos, it's from placenta, it's from whatnot. So you don't, we don't actually know that that matches up perfectly with what's in the kids. But, you know, it, it's tricky. And there's, you know, I don't think there is a, ever going to be a consensus on what the right answer is here. That was Conversations with Scientists, an episode in the series called The CRISPR Children. Today's episode was with Dr. Kiran Musunuru of the University of Pennsylvania, and who also co-founded the company Verve Therapeutics. There are multiple episodes about the CRISPR children and also a story by that name in Nature Biotechnology. And I just wanted to say, just because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the University of Pennsylvania did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.